Psalm 17. Oh, please rise for the reading of God's word. <laughs> Hear just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge, from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. O rise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray. Good morning, Lord. Thank you for uh, having your word written down. We know um, your thoughts, Lord, as it pertains to David's prayer life here. And I pray, just open our eyes, Lord, to more of who you are and what it's like to communicate with you and to commune with you and to pray with you, Lord. So have your way with us, Holy Spirit. May we be transformed more into your image. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to spend our time today looking at one of David's prayers when he was going through a really tough situation. And by, by God's grace, we have this record for us in Scripture. Now can you imagine if your prayer to God was recorded in the pages of Scripture for all to see? How do you communicate with God during a tough time? We're going to see in Psalm 17 a bold humble and raw prayer from a servant of God. Ultimately, David's prayer is a prayer of protection, and this prayer can be broken up into three parts. These are the fill-ins for your outline. First, David's need and request for vindication, verses one through five. The second part of David's prayer is David's need and request for refuge, verses six through 12. And the last part is David's need and request for deliverance, verses 13 through 15. The exact context of David's prayer is not given in the subtitle or in the passage, but based on verse 9, we know that David is surrounded by enemies seeking to kill him. Now one possibility for this prayer was when David was running away from Saul, as recorded in 1 Samuel 23, 
verse 26. And I'll read that for us. 1 Samuel 23, verse 26. Saul went on on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. That's one possibility for this prayer. Now, David starts his prayer by asking God to hear him. Think about that. You have a prayer recorded in scripture and you have David asking God to hear him. In verse six, David calls upon God specifically because he knows God will do more than hear him, God will answer him. So in verse six, David asks God again to hear him. So why does David repeatedly ask God to hear him out? Have you asked God to hear you and hear your request? I'd venture to say that many of us have. Why? Don't we believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present? The reason why David and we have asked God to hear us was not because of doctrine, but because of desperation. When a request stems from a serious situation, we are inclined to ask God, please hear this request, Lord. I really need you now. I need you to respond. In verse 1, David prays and asks God to attend to my cry. And the word for cry is usually translated as shout for joy. Obviously, in David's current situation, he's not rejoicing because he's in a life or death situation. Nor is David using his inside voice before God. The point is, David is crying out before the Lord in a piercing, ringing cry that is as loud as if he was shouting out of joy. It could be said that David was wailing. So this prayer is more than David asking God to make his life comfortable. He's asking God to protect his very life. So as we sit here, it's difficult for us to truly understand what David's going through because many of us have not been threatened or persecuted in a life or death situation. At the very least, most of us have been in a spot where we cried out to God. This is the circumstance David is in. This is not a casual prayer. This is a prayer of a man who didn't know if he was going to live another day. So how does David respond to his situation? He responds by praying. That leads me to our first point. David's need and request for vindication. Let's read in Psalm 17, verses 1 through 5. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So you see in, verse, in the first verse, David tells God that his reason for praying is just and right. It's as if David is coming before God as judge to plead his case. David's not making a big deal of a small situation. In David's case, 
It was a life or death situation. Not only is David reasoning for praying just and right, David is making a case before God that he himself is just and right. This is a bold prayer before the judge. Notice how David makes a case for his personal holiness. And this is how David describes himself. In verse 1, he says, His lips are free of deceit. In verse 3, God will find nothing evil after examining him. In verse 3, his mouth will not transgress. In verse 4, he has avoided violent ways. In verse 5, his steps have stayed on God's path. So how can David put himself on trial before the most holy God and make these lofty claims? David knows, and David knows that God knows that he's a sinner. In David's own words, David says in Psalm 51 that he's, he was sinful at birth. So what's happening in these first five verses? It seems that David is going through a situation in addition to his enemies seeking his life where he's getting unjustly blamed or being charged with false claims. If you've had any leadership role in your life, you can relate to David. In verse two, what David really wants is vindication. He wants God to make a legal decision or judgment that will clear his name. Because God is just and does what is just, David has confidence that God would decide in his favor. Like David, Job was a righteous yet suffered. He had a similar confidence before God. And Job 13, 18 reads, Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. So David's not claiming absolute sinlessness. Rather, David's behavior toward his accusers has been godly and righteous. In other words, David is praying, Lord, I have been falsely accused and slandered, but I have responded in a godly way. Please step in to vindicate me. Now to be clear, David is not using his personal integrity to get God to vindicate him, as if God could be persuaded by, our, by his behavior. I've done all these good things for you, God. Now it's your turn to be good to me. You see this mindset tested when people go through trials. So how will a person going through trials interact with God during that season? Will the person draw closer to God or away from God? For the person that runs away from God, it could be that the person was faithful to God and because that person's faithfulness expected God to act in a certain way. When God did not act in that way the person expected, the person grew bitter and angry with God. Thus, the person runs away from God. The thing is, you can't truly run away from God. If you read the first part of the book of Jonah, he was upset that God sent him to Nineveh because he didn't want to be God's mouthpiece to a despicable people. Instead, Jonah went in a different direction. It's pretty funny if you think about it because it's impossible to run away from God and be out of his reach. If you read the first chapter of Jonah, Jonah's downward spiral is amplified in the text by Jonah going down to the other city, down into the ship, and down to sleep. God is not persuaded by our moral actions. God doesn't believe in karma. God shows mercy on whom he shows mercy. 
And he shows mercy to an undeserving place like Nineveh by sending Jonah to preach God's message of repentance to them. Do you see God's goodness in that? Do you see the goodness of God in that we get to hear the gospel, the message of repentance every single week? In David's situation, he draws closer to God. In addition, he doesn't try to use his integrity as leverage to try to get God to do what he wants. David's mindset is more akin to, God, I have walked in a manner that is good and right during this time. I have not given you a reason to discipline me, but to respond in a way that is in keeping with your character as a good judge that you are. I come to you because only your judgments matter. Have you been falsely accused or blamed for something you didn't do? How did you carry yourself during that time? Did you get defensive towards those who brought the accusations? Did you live with integrity so that you could humbly ask God to vindicate you? Did you try to take matters into your own hands? The clearest example of someone being falsely accused is Jesus. He lived his life perfectly and always lived to please the Father in thought, word, deed, and motive. Even so, he was betrayed by one of his own disciples, and the people whom he healed and taught for three years said to crucify him. He lived perfectly, yet died a criminal's death. In a greater way than Job and David, Jesus is a true and innocent sufferer. Not only did Jesus not deserve what happened to him, he had the power to stop it and didn't. Jesus was crucified by those whom he created, and he died to forgive those who killed him. The injustice that Jesus went through was incredible, yet for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, Colossians says. King David went through injustice and asked for God's justice to clear his name. King Jesus went through our injustice so that God could clear our name. Jesus died to clear our name. And if there's one name that should be cleared and vindicated, it should be his. Instead, Jesus is the perfect plea before God the Father on our behalf. Now, this is something outside the box, but I would like everyone to repeat out loud this phrase. Jesus really does love me. Jesus died to clear my name before God. The men's group is going through a book by Jerry Bridges, and he says in chapter 2, we need to make the gospel personalized. We need to personalize the gospel because if we don't, it just becomes another doctrine. And when we remind ourselves that gospel is one thing, but for another person to apply that gospel to us is also very powerful. So I want you to share that same phrase to your neighbor. Say, Jesus really does love you. Jesus died to clear your name before God. We need to let the gospel be used on our heart to bring a greater sense of awe and adoration to God our Savior. This is why the gospel is so important for believers. We need it to grow. So how does the gospel show us how to handle blame and accusation? Now there are times when we need to prove your, our innocence. 
We do this by living godly. After God saved the Apostle Paul, the Christians were distrustful of him because he had previously killed Christians. I would say their fear was reasonable. <laughs> Paul, but Paul needed vindication so that he could minister to people. So even though Paul had changed, Barnabas took Paul with him to vouch for him. So even when people bring, bring blame and accusation, we must live godly lives. We must value our character and integrity above, over and above our reputation. So what does it look like to value our character over reputation? Well, because of Christ, we can carry, carry ourselves in a way that honors God. We still may suffer loss of reputation, but we can have a quiet confidence that God protects those who are his. In Christ, we are accepted so we can rest in the acceptance, the justification, and vindication we already have. When we realize what we already have in Christ, we will less likely seek it and need it from others. We will be able to find strength in how God views us rather in what others think about us. If we are more concerned about what others think of, about us, this is an indication that we're not applying the gospel in that area of our life. Christ is the vindicator of our soul. This allows us to pray, please, Lord, be my vindicator. I want to be at peace with how you view me. Point number two, David's need and request for refuge. Verses six through 12, let's read that. Verse six, I call upon you, for you, you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge. From their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. So after David pleads his case before God as judge, he now asks for protection from God as Savior. Again, we see, God, or we see David asking God again, please hear my request. And when words are repeated, whether in God's word or in our personal prayer life, these words are emphasized. Since David is really designed for God to hear him, it's clear he's in a great spot of trouble. In verse 7, it transitions to a beautiful request from David before his Savior. The ESV reads, Wondrously show your steadfast love. The love that David is referring to is called hesed, which we've, uh, Pastor Otis preached on before. It's the Hebrew word that has to do with God's faithful, covenantal love towards his own. If you're a parent, the kid's book titled The Jesus Storybook Bible explains love in a covenantal way. It says this, God loves you with a never-ending, never-giving-up, unstopping always and forever love. God loves you with a never-ending, never-giving-up, unstopping, always and forever love. And I would add, because of Christ. 
The command for God in verse 7 to, or from David to God, to wondrously show can be, can be translated as distinguish or set apart. What David is asking God is, Lord, make your has said, your covenantal love wonderful to me. Make it surpass everything else. Make it shine. Make it stand out to me. In other words, Lord, I want your love to be the northern lights. Your love to be the Grand Canyon. Your love to be Niagara Falls, like Mount Everest. Impossible to be unaffected by. So right in the middle of this prayer in Psalm 17, David knows what he needs most from God. More than vindication, more than protection, more than deliverance from his enemies, David needs God to make his love for him to be awe-inspiring, astonishing, and amazing to his very soul. What if God answered all of David's requests with a yes? God cleared his name, God protected him, and God conquered his enemies, but what if David didn't adore or worship God in light of what he had done? David would be using God. He would be treating God as his personal divine butler to get what he wants from someone more, <clears throat> more powerful than him. The same is true of us when we know what Jesus has done for us, but we don't worship him as he deserves because of it. We want the benefits of the gospel, and so in effect we pray to God, Lord, or God, I want you to be my savior, but not my Lord. We should communicate to God in prayer, and that does involve making requests. So making requests doesn't mean we're treating God like a personal butler. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that asking God for things is a sin. What I am saying is, if all we do is ask God for things, and we don't ask God for more of him, to open our eyes to who he is, and to wondrously show and increase his awe and love and obedience to him, then we are using God. Do you spend more time asking God or adoring God in your prayer life? In my previous life, when I was an associate pastor, we would have a prayer meeting before the midweek Bible study. Before we asked for prayer requests, the senior pastor, who was Scott, who's here at the time, he's here, he would ask everyone, let's spend some time before God in prayer and only praise him. Do not ask God for anything, only offer praise. And be honest, in that prayer meeting, <laughs> there were long moments of silence. I would say for weeks and weeks. It was tough for us to pray without asking God for anything. Why was it tough and awkward? Because we weren't used to just praising God. We're used to making requests from God in our prayer life. Imagine in your marriage relationship, what would happen if all you did is ask your spouse for things? What if you hardly encourage, bless, or praise your spouse? How would your spouse feel? Do you spend more time asking God or adoring God in your prayer life? As I said before, asking God for things is not a sin, 
But we need to examine our prayer life to see how much we do praise him. Going back to verse 7, David asked God, make your covenantal love wonderful to me. The thing is, not only is David dependent upon God for all his physical needs and the like, David is dependent upon God in order to pursue God himself. To say it another way, we need God in order to seek God. Even so, the Bible commands us to seek him. In Psalm 105, verse 4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. John Piper had this to say about the Christian pursuit of God. Quote, it is the conscious fixing and focusing our minds, attention, and our hearts' affection on God. The setting of the mind is the opposite of mental coasting. It is a conscious choice to direct our heart toward God is a conscious effort on our part. But that effort to seek God is a gift from God. Close quote. So we need to make a conscious effort to set our mind and heart on God, and then we ask him to multiply it. So in David's prayer in verse 7, he is asking for that gift. He prays, wondrously show your steadfast love. That's a big request. And I think we need to ask God for big things in our prayer life, things that please his heart. So rather than just asking God, show your love, we should have bigger requests, right? Miraculously, wondrously show your love to us. Specifically, David wants God to show his ascent love to those who need refuge from their adversaries. These enemies are arrogant, callous, and violent in verses 9 and 10. Notice how David describes his need for refuge. David gives two metaphors, two word pictures of how he wants God to protect him. Like an eye and like a baby chick. Do you ever use metaphors or word pictures in your prayers? I know it's not my default. (laughs) There is power in communicating with God using word pictures. Sometimes words only cannot express what we truly mean, so we use word pictures. Jesus taught using illustrations and parables too. Our prayers shouldn't always sound like a thank you card to God. Not that thank cards are bad. I think our prayers need to be um, not canned. In the first metaphor, David prays, keep me as the apple of your eye. I don't have any apples in my eye. God doesn't have any apples in his eye. I would say on a good day, my 22-month-old son might get a couple apple chunks stuck in his eye. But we know this is an idiom, right? So the apple of your eye has to do with the pupil, the center of your eye. In Hebrew, the pupil is the daughter of your eye. So when David prays this idiom before God, he's saying, Lord, treat me as you would your very own eye, one of your most precious and valuable organs. The good news is David is valued by God more than a set of eyes. For us on this side of the cross, God has not only said that he loves us, but he has proven his love. He treats us better than an eye, He treats us like a son or daughter. 
In the second metaphor, David prays to God, hide me in the shadow of your wings. God doesn't have wings, but hens do, and they do everything they can to protect and nurture those baby chicks. So David is asking God, in effect, I'm in danger. Treat me as one of your baby chicks. If you have kids, think about your child's first few months of life. We have a few new, newborns here at the church, and my wife will soon give birth to our second child. So mothers, how strongly do you want to protect and sustain their life? That's the kind of protection David wants from his Savior. Please shelter me as you would a baby bird. Protect me as you would your own eye. He needs this protection because there are people close by that want to cast him to the ground and tear him like a line would. Verse 11 and 12. So one of the great angles on the gospel is to communicate the gospel as adoption. Because of Christ, we are adopted into God's family as sons of daughters of the king. This is not just a label or nickname from God. He truly does love us and calls us beloved, even to the point of giving us an eternal inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. David's request for protection is true for those in Christ. And because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we are eternally secured and have an everlasting refuge with our great God and Savior. Number three, David's need and request for deliverance. Let's read verses 13 through 15. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So David is asking for deliverance on two fronts. First, he's asking for deliverance from physical danger of his enemies to deliver him from harm. And secondly, from the spiritual danger of his enemies to deliver him from having their harmful mindset. So in David's last part of his prayer, he now transitions to God as Lord and wants his master to go to war with his enemies. David commands his God to rise for battle, confront his enemies, and subdue him. The word subdue literally means to cause to bow down. So David wants God to fight on his behalf and to force his enemies to be prostrate on the ground. This is complete domination. It's interesting how God describes, or sorry, how David describes his enemies. Before, he described them as callous, arrogant, and wanting to kill him. Here, he describes them as people who have their portion in this life. Verse 14. In other words, David says that his wicked enemies have their reward in this earthly, temporary life with treasures from God himself. And in God's amazing goodness, he gives good things for the wicked to enjoy. Let's read verse 14 again. 
from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. The irony here is, God gives people of this world what they want, abundance in both treasures and children, but they don't praise God for it. In addition, the, thing that, the things that God gives them becomes their purpose in life. They find their life satisfaction in the things that God gives them. So in essence, those things become their God. That's the problem. In this life, they think they're storing up their God-given abundance, but in reality, they're really storing up their God forthcoming judgment. The wicked think they have everything, but without God, they really have nothing. This is the sad irony. It's also sad for the Christian who, like the unbeliever, does not praise God very much for what God has given him. The Apostle Paul writes, what do you have that was not given to you? So everything we have is a gift. So may we ask God to give us eyes to see his grace all around us and not to assume it, not to take it for granted, or forget to thank him for it. The mindset of the wicked in verse 14 is contrasted with David in verse 15. The wicked will see their stuff passed on to their children, but, God will, but David will see God in his likeness. The satisfaction of the wicked is found in their children. David's satisfaction is with God himself. Even though David is being persecuted by his enemies, he is the one with the good life. Why? It's because his portion is not in this world that's passing away, but in God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. His enemies will receive the sword and the hand of God. David will see the face of God and be satisfied. Are you more satisfied with God or the things he gives to you? Do you pray about things that will last for eternity? Or do you pray about things that will last for your lifetime? In verse 15, David mentions that he's going to awake and be satisfied with God's likeness. I don't think David is going to physically sleep during this tough situation and wake up and behold God's face. Because of God's holiness, we're not able to see God face to face on earth. It's in heaven where we'll see his glorious presence. And this is the opposite of his enemies who have their hope on earth. David's hope is not in the temporal, but in the eternal. Even if his wicked enemies prosper in a worldly sense, they will see God as judge in the final day. But David, he will see God as savior and see his likeness and be satisfied. If you are a follower of Christ, we have the same hope on the cross. Jesus defeated sin, Satan, death, and hell for those who would depend on Christ as their hope and satisfaction. The things of this world are passing away, but what is for Christ will truly last. Even when things are tough, David can pray this way. So in conclusion, we have the blessing to go to God in prayer. 
So even when things are tough, maybe praise him in our prayers more often than before because he is good. May we ask him to make his sacrificial love wonderful to us because he is our savior. And may we be more satisfied with seeking God than before because he is Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's take a few moments of this quiet prayer between, between you and God and this, to share your heart with him, share metaphors, share big requests, thank him, praise him, and I'll close. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for just your patience with us, Lord. We know, or I know, that many times I ask you for things before I even thank you. So I just confess to you, God, the times where I treat you like a butler, asking you for things because I want them, Lord. I pray you'd give me a heart and give us a heart to ask for things that are on your heart, Lord. The things that you desire, the things that are that will last for eternity, things that will alter eternity for people's lives through the gospel. I also ask you, Lord, that you would make your love so wonderful to us, Lord. I pray the gospel and what you've done for us wouldn't be common. I pray it would shine in our hearts. It would stand out in our minds. I pray you'd use the gospel and your love to shape us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Thank you, Lord, that we get to read David's prayer life before you, raw and bold and humble. May we communicate with you in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.